Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson. Welcome to The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me each week on The Crime Couch for a rollicking, intriguing tale. It'll be one heck of a journey. This collation is a snippet of some of the first 40 episodes of The Crime Couch. Every episode has really been an extraordinary glimpse into the life of of the men and women of Victoria Police and some interesting characters on the other side of the law. While no story is more important than another, these personal tales really map out life for former Victoria Police members and veterans across eight decades and have made an impact on us and on you, our listeners. This interview with Ron Fenton was really powerful because despite being terminally ill, he had such an amazingly positive attitude. Unfortunately, three and a half weeks after doing our interview, Ron passed. Rest in peace, Ron Fenton. The situation is I I have terminal cancer. Uh, They've run out of treatment options, so nothing can be done for me now. Unfortunately, the, the cancer is just going to grow within my body until such time as it kills me. Uh, but I'm at peace with that. I'm at peace with that because I've had a an amazing life. I've I've met some, I've met hundreds of amazing people that have supported me and and helped me through my life. Um, I've I've been blessed to experience some amazing things. I've dived in the sinkholes in Mount Gambier. I've, walked the Kokoda track, I've prosecuted law at Duntroon. Um, I've been in the SOG before there was an SOG. Search and Rescue used to be the SOG. Uh, I've had an amazing, spectacular life. I've filled it to the full. And Yogi's Yogi's with me in my dying days because uh, now it's just a case of how long it takes for the cancer to actually get me. Uh, But I have my companion that is always there and just looks at me with those beautiful eyes and lets me know it's okay dad so i'm at peace with you know i'm going for assisted dying and i'm at peace with it i've had a great life it's time to step down off off this off the podium and let others have their amazing lives ken ashy ashworth made an impact with his story about his experiences with one of australia's most notorious armed robbers and escapees Christopher Badness Bins. Here's a snippet. He's been institutionalised his whole life, ever yeah. since he was a child. You know, he was bashed by his father and he doesn't know any better. Mm. Anyway, we sit there, we're just making small talk and having a chat and what's the food like and bits and pieces. And uh, he said, oh, I survived an attack by, from that uh, Johnson fella. He shows me a huge scar. And he said, I was lucky I didn't bleed out. Said, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So again, the small talk, bits and pieces. I said, look, I've got an appointment this afternoon, so can we get down to, to business? He said, yeah, no worries. I said, well, the, the high point job where the shot went off, he said, yeah, I did that. Um, da, da, da. So he confessed. Um, 
to all those jobs. Um, and I made sure that he said things that only the offender would know. So I knew it was him. Mm. And I said that to the, to the guys here. One stage during that banter, he leans forward and he, and he talks to the, looks over to the blokes and he says, you know, back in the day when Ashley and I were working together and I've interjected, I said, hey, hey, these up, we never worked together, you know. I wore the white hat, you wore the black hat, you know, good guy, bad guy, that's how it goes. And he goes, yeah, 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 you know what I mean. <laughs> I said, you'll have these blokes thinking I'm the Roger Rogerson of Victoria. And anyway, they're, they're still looking a bit worried. I said, come on, let's talk about these holdups. And away we went, and he went through them. And I made sure, as I said, he mentioned things that only the offender would know. Mm. Um, so that was it, and um, the guys were happy. Mm. And did a formal interview with him, and, and away it went. As the first single mum and the youngest female CIB detective, Kay Murphy really smashed some glass ceilings. Here's part of our discussion about the day Russell Street Police Headquarters was bombed. It was devastating. I really knew, I think, that day that the war had begun. When I say the war, I knew that if criminals had gone to that extent to blow up a car outside Russell Street in the middle of the day at a very busy time, that there was going to be a lot of um, activity around by the police and particularly where I worked and at the breaking squad well, they were called the Major Crime Squad by then, but I knew that we were going to have a lot of activity because I knew that these criminals would be caught. I just knew that everybody would put in every effort they could. How did that crime impact on Victoria Police and its members, Kay? Um, as I said, I believe that that day, I certainly know that I knew that day that the war had begun, but I think that a lot of police then realised that, again, this war had begun. There were a lot of police officers in the building that day and I'm pleased to say that those criminals didn't get to do what they did, what they wanted to do, and that was bring their car in the back gate and under, put it under the building that I was in. Had they done that... Um, I think things could have been a whole lot worse. So I think that once people got to know the story, um, police members, I think that um, everybody then realised the way we had known our lives to be as police officers, but also as civilians, I think we all realised that that day was the beginning of um, what was to come. Brian Stook has a huge reputation in the job. He showed extraordinary courage, returning to work as a paraplegic after being shot by Mad Max. He remembers that terrifying encounter. I had an alcohol holster on at that stage and uh, because the, uh, I believe it was the second shot that uh, sent me on the road was the one that paralysed me uh, and... Uh, I also had shots shot through the right hand, and uh, which ruined it completely. And I was unable to reach the uh, uh, my revolver. So, did this 
happen in real time? Like if you think about it now, was it in slow-mo? Was it in – how did it all appear in your mind, Brian? It It's – it you you remember everything that that happened at the time, but it would have only taken seconds probably for it to have happened. But uh, you remember each shot um, and there's a distinct – gap between those shots or this appears to be but you you're just aware that you know at any time the one could be fatal and what on earth was going through your mind as you're lying on the road my first instinct was that i'm going to get run over uh and so i, I called out to peter well first of all to drag me off the road uh, which, even though he was shot through the right shoulder, he managed to grab my legs and or legs and actually drag me actually to the side of the road. Then I said, "Call for assistance straight away." So that's when Peter got on the radio. Uh, we'd already had a license check and a car check done on him, so we knew that um, D24 would have all those details. We actually still had uh, Marinoff's or. Uh, or Max Clark, as he was known to us at that stage, we still had his driver's licence on, on, on the clipboard. So. It was great talking to Giovanna Campana on the crime couch. She was the first female sergeant police negotiator in the protective security group and the first female sergeant posted to East Timor. Here's Giovanna. Back in those days, we wore pantyhose and skirts and we had white shirts that you had to hand sew the Victoria Police label on the sleeves and you had to do that every time you got new shirts. They didn't come pre-done. So, yeah, quite the men obviously had it, but... Not the women. What if there's a female you couldn't sew? <laughs> yeah, well, you had to go to the dry cleaners to get their uh, sewer to do it. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, some of them didn't look too great. But <laughs> um, then when I went to Ballarat, obviously in winter, extremely cold. So one night shift, the boss let me wear the boys' pants, the trousers, and, and the big overcoats that the men used to wear because the women had a more tailored knee-length one. Fabulous. So it was great. <laughs> How did that go down with knowing that uh, as a policewoman you were wearing men's trousers? Well, it was funny because one of the boys had to lend me a pair of his. So it was a bit of trial and error trying on some that didn't look too <laughs> over the top. But uh, no, it was great. Very much needed in Ballarat. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Jeff Tullock was known in the job for his honesty and meticulous record-keeping. He recalls the night he met the American president, LBJ. Lyndon Baines Johnson, the American president, was visiting Australia and uh, I, were, together with uh, some other detectives, uh, were assigned to work with the American Secret Service uh, for his security here. And uh, one particular occasion meant going to Government House uh, 
and giving him security while he attended a ball, a function held for celebrities. And uh, it got to be about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, very late. I was extremely tired. So I opened the door to an anteroom off the hallway going to the ballroom, sat down, have a shut eye for a few seconds, and the door burst open. And much to my surprise, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President of the United States, burst in, sat down and said, God, it's great to have a rest. Who are you? I said, well, I'm your Secret Service security. (laughs) And uh, we had a conversation, short may it have been. Uh, He got out his pen with his name on it and said, Jeff, take this, keep it, my compliments, and uh, nice to have a few minutes with you. I must get back to the ballroom. And out he went. Most of us remember the Hoddle Street Massacre. Former Superintendent Graham Squirty Kent is still the Victoria Police spokesperson for the case. He talks about the impact that event has had on him. I think differently about it now than what I did back then. Um, There was a time, I think roughly six weeks, I reckon, um, after this happened, where we really just didn't get our heads up above the parapet at all. We were just so busy. Um, and I think back now and reflect that we had a fairly narrow focus. You know, our job as the investigators, and you really feel the burden of this when, when one died, let alone when seven have died, and it's such a magnitude. But you really feel the burden of this as a responsibility to investigate for the coroner on behalf of the community. And so I was really proud of the professionalism and and, the, um, and I was so well guided by Brian McCarthy and I'd had the experience of also working with John Hill in an earlier homicide inquiry. And um, our job was just to do the job, uh, to um, get the evidence um, and make sure we put the best case possible before the courts. So that was probably it. It was quite narrow in that sense. Um, there was an occasion probably about six weeks after um, when I remember taking my son who was just a toddler down to the beach and I spread out a whole lot of newspapers which I hadn't read in all that time because I just didn't have time to watch the TV news or read the papers and I remember spreading the newspapers out while he's playing around and having a look at some of those stories and, and that's when it hit me it was like a great big breaking wave that smashed me and um quite an emotional moment for me. Now, no one was there to see it. Um, it didn't last long. Um, but that's when the enormity of the trauma and the loss um, and the grief, um, not just for individuals um, who had died, but for their families and for the others who had been involved as well. Um, you know what? Um, um, I probably got past that really quickly. And... Um, there was never a time where I've been angry at, at this man because um, it was a professional approach that I, I, I had to had to maintain, and I think I've done that pretty well. Um, to the point where I sometimes wonder, is there something wrong with me? Why don't I feel angry? Why don't I get emotional about this? Um, um, but increasingly I reflect on it and think, well, I haven't listened.
And how do I describe my father, former Chief Superintendent Bill Jackson? An officer and a gentleman is very appropriate. Here's Bill. Probably I did a, a very big job at the National Gallery. Um, they were losing their coins and they wondered where they were going and I was given the job to find out what was happening and I, I, there was a, they didn't have a numismatist to look after their coin collection but they had a guy that was also, uh, he was in another area but he used to go to the coin room and he was the only one that had a key, a key to the coin room. And they were losing all sorts of coins. And I found out about him and I arrested him and charged him with thousands and thousands of pounds in those days of coins that he'd stolen. So he was obviously had the specialist ability to choose the best ones and nab them. Yes, and when he went to trial, um, he had a very uh, good barrister and when I charged him with, you know, so many so many modern coins of, you know, perhaps it was a, a 1920 penny, he might have had 10 of those, he might have had a number of uh, florins which used to be two two dollar pieces in those days, two shilling pieces. And I charged him with all of those. And when he went to court, his barrister said, well, I couldn't prove that they were the ones that were stolen from the coin room. But what he didn't know was that he had also stolen coins that were handmade mm. and they were unique. And so even though we couldn't prove that the 1923, 24, 25, whatever they were, uh, we couldn't prove those, we certainly scuttled him on the, on the handmade ones because they had rubbings of those. And he got sentenced to quite a, a lengthy period of imprisonment, which he would have done very hard. Well, it's funny that you say that because a lot of uh, things that I used to do in the job, I still do today. Uh, an example, if I pull up at the traffic light somewhere and I'm driving, I look to my right to see who's in the car on my right and then I look to the left to see who's in the car on my left and that's, that's an old... Uh, a copper's trick, I guess. Are there any other things like that that you do? No, that's all the rest has faded uh, into memory because uh, Vic Pol is, is a totally different uh, um, structure now than it was when I was there. You were in Squad 5 of 1956. Now, how many of your squad mates are still alive, Bill? I'm the only one. Is that a bit of a surprise to you that you're the last man standing? Oh, no. Some of them uh, fell by the wayside. Uh, uh, a couple ended up in jail. 
some got the sack. Um, you know, there was there was a high uh, uh, retarding rate. Thank you very much, Bill, for sitting with me today on the Crime Catch. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Rochelle. It's been good. That's it for Season 1. Season 2 will return in 2022 with more fascinating glimpses into the lives of the women and men of Victoria Police and other interesting individuals involved in crime and justice. I'm Rochelle Jackson. From me, the Crime Couch editor Pete Dillon and all of the guests and storytellers involved in the production of this podcast, have a very safe holiday season and I look forward to your company next season on The Crime Couch.